work uh, pre-millennialism, and uh, then we'll uh, take a look at um, prep for seeing dispensational pre-millennialism, and good, the Senates are here, so if I uh, misrepresent, now, the pr dispensational premillennialism. Um, I'll, I'll look to Steve as my authority on that to fill us in. Yes. Uh, now, there are, in, in all of these, there are different versions uh, of things. Amillennialism is pretty standard in terms of there's not a lot of variance within it. But in, uh, in the others, you have uh, variance depending on what time you were in, like last century or two centuries ago versus now. Um, there have been some changes, but um, so let's take a look here. So our uh, historic uh, premillennialism. Uh, with so when we say pre and post, pre what and post what? What are we? What's the reference there? What are we talking about? Okay, so the thousand years is the is the thing that sets apart all the last times or the, the millennial views, the thousand years. And then when we say pre, what's pre when we say pre-millennialism? Yeah, the second coming. So those are the two events to keep in mind when you talk pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, or amillennialism. You're talking about when is the second coming. And so uh, in pre-millennialism, you've got the second coming before the millennium. So there's a second coming, and then the millennium happens. So in post-millennialism, you've got the millennium here, and what happens when? Second coming is after. Yeah, the second coming is after a millennium. Okay, uh, and so with historic premillennialism, which was uh, in church history early on, um, it was it was a held view as opposed to dispensational premillennialism, which we'll look at in just a little bit, which starts in about the mid-1800s, a little after the mid-1800s in uh, the England and America. But historic premillennialism was a common, a more common view in the first centuries of the church. Um, and uh, so uh, some of the things, uh, you got uh, signs of the times, antichrist. Um, uh, let's see, Dakota, can you read this second bullet for us? Okay, so, you know, in our, just to visualize this for, so here's our, here's our thousand years here. And so in premillennialism, Jesus comes back to start the millennium. And then he's on earth and he gives believers who are on earth at the time of his coming glorified bodies. He raises the dead believers' bodies and unites them with their souls that have been with him in heaven until this time. And so then he reigns on earth for a thousand years. Um, all believers have glorified bodies this time. Um, it's common in premillennialism that they believe that most of the Jews on earth at that time come to believe. Um, and then at the end of, at, so that second coming, we just keep that in mind. Second coming is here in premillennialism. Uh, and then at the end, he finishes off the rest of the stuff. So you've got final, final judgment basically is here. And then that leads into the new heavens and new earth. Okay. Final battle is there? The yeah, so final battle. What are they fighting over then? <laughs> yeah, there's still unbelievers uh, on earth during the during the millennium. Okay. And um, yeah, so good question. Yep. And so final judgment, you've got the uh, believers who are around in the last part of the millennium, uh, plus uh, any the souls of dead believers or dead unbelievers <laughs> in hell are emptied out. Revelation 20, uh, hell is emptied out and then hell is tossed into the lake of fire, but you've got then final judgment and then new heavens and new earth. So the big thing with historic premillennialism is it spreads, it spreads out 
all this stuff that, that uh, all millennial people see as together, um, it spreads it out at the front and end of a thousand years. Uh, because it, it, and, and all, what's the key, what's the, anyone remember the key verse in premillennialism or the key place in premillennialism that kind of hangs them up um, in Christ um, physically on earth reigning for a thousand years with believers? Twenty. Revelation twenty. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's it's that that believers uh, live and reign with Christ for a thousand years, and so they take that as a physical thing on earth, and, and so that that gives them a millennium where Jesus is on earth reigning and ruling over unbelievers with a rod of iron. So they need <clears throat> they need Jesus because they take Jesus as physically reigning with physical believers. And with a rod of iron over unbelievers, they need a millennium on earth to accomplish that. Uh, whereas you have with amillennialism and, and um, I think a post, I can't think through that right now. Uh, you've got that that's a spiritual reign of Christ with believers. They're spreading the gospel. People are, are um, uh, coming to faith during this time, which we call the millennium. So amillennialism. Right now is the millennium, okay, and it's been such since Jesus ascended. Uh, most post-millennialists today also believe we're in the millennium now. <clears throat> the difference is, all millennialists at the end of, if you're an ah, um, at the end of the millennium, when Jesus comes back, um, what's the earth look like in terms of faith? Like yeah. yeah, yeah, it's still a small group. Uh, that that uh, maxim that Jesus is given: narrow is the road, and fewer those fewer those who or narrow is the gate, and fewer those who find it and enter through it, is still true here. And Jesus' statement: and when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Is is there? Now, whereas post millennialists who also see us in the in the millennium now. Uh, when they get to the end, how do they see the earth? Better. Yeah. Um, they see, you know, uh, just for the sake of putting a number on it, 85% of the earth are Christians when Jesus comes back. And, and so it's joy to the world. Let, you know, let earth receive her king. And everybody rejoices as Jesus comes back. Uh, and uh, instead of what we see in like Revelation 6, the view of the second coming, which is unbelievers are hiding in caves and saying, may the rocks fall on me rather than I have to face my maker in the midst of my rebellion. Yeah, Matthew. Am I correct in thinking that the awe in amillennialism is just like awe in atheism in that atheism means not theism? Mm -hmm. And those, so this means not millennialism, correct? No, it's a bad, it's bad nomenclature. So don't try to learn anything from the awe and awe millennialism. Um, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it, I think awe millennialism as a term, as we have it, probably my theory is it came from post-millennialists and pre-millennialists were set. And the awe millennialists said, we don't believe it like that. <laughs> and we're out of uh, prefixes. Yes, amillennialism really postmillennialism at its start said the millennium is not here yet. The millennium will be in the future, and it will be a thousand years of a golden age in in which Christ reigning from heaven still has a spiritual reign over the earth in which it grows and grows and grows and more and more people become believers. A greater percentage of living people on earth become believers and until we get to the end when Jesus says, well, my work is almost done and he just shows up to the grave claim of the whole earth, um, essentially. So that's the post-millennialist view. And so, um, uh, yeah, so post-millennialism post used to be more different from amillennialism 
because it used to be only the amillennialists were saying we're in the millennium now and that has been the case since Jesus ascended. So more accurately it would be HC millennialism. HC millennialism? Which would be what? Historical contingency millennialism? Yes. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, Bob. So, just get this straight in my mind. So, post the non millennialist, but during this millennium, all the elect are being gathered. Yeah. So, when Jesus comes back, all the elect are gathered. Yes. So, in the pre millennialist, he comes back and then he starts gathering the elect? Uh, or are he's the elect all gathered during this? Uh, no. Um, so, in pre millennial, and good question. So in premillennialism, um, so because amillennialists and postmillennialists put all the events together when Jesus comes back, second coming, um, that is final battle, final judgment, um, creation of the new heavens and new earth. Um, so they put all that with the second coming. When Jesus comes back, all the elect have been gathered. Okay, and so it's it's Revelation um, six. Um, let's see, it's fifth seal, so 610. Um, and, and so that uh, the dead saints in heaven are told to wait a little longer until all those who are to be killed as you have been, that number will have been completed. Um, and so Jesus comes back and all the elect have been gathered. In premillennialism, and this is Bob's question, in premillennialism, Jesus comes back and all the elect haven't been gathered yet. And there are, there are people who during the millennium, during the reign of Jesus, during this thousand years, um, come to faith. Now, so it would be a faith by sight, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, but it would still be a faith, I mean, to, to give them a generous uh, evaluation. It would still be a faith in saying, my existence in bliss in the new heavens and new earth comes only through uh, bowing the knee to my king in sincerity. Uh, to be fair, the Pharisees saw and didn't have faith. Yeah, uh, and so it, it is a, it's more of faith by sight. They still, they still post-millennials would say, you know, a person during the millennium who's not a believer yet um, would still have this element of not, of not by sight in terms of the new heavens and new earth. And they would still need to believe in a, a coming uh, blessed uh, earth where the meek inherit that. Um, and in post-millennialism as well, or sorry, pre-millennialism as well, Bob, uh, most pre-millennialists believe that um, there's a great influx of Jewish people, living Jewish people who come to faith during this time. And those would be elect people and so the premillennials would say, no, uh, um, uh, the elect are not all gathered until the end of the millennium when Jesus does final battle and brings that into final judgment. But it's still in the collect the elect. Yeah, so, so still uh, Jesus will collect all the elect. It's just most are collected before, but then more are collected after he returns and during this millennium. But all are collected before and before final judgment. Yeah, and final battle. Before final battle and final judgment. Good. Any other uh, questions on, on that? So just follow, following down now. Um, so in this earthly millennium, um, Sierra, would you read this one for us? <laughs> And then a third one, um, Laura. The millennium closes justly. Satan released final battle. Satan to the lake of fire, final judgment, final sleep. Okay. So that's historic premillennialism. It just, the big thing to think of is that they, they split the events that we see as, as with the second coming of Jesus. They split them by front of the millennium, back of the millennium. And they have Jesus reigning over a mixed group for a thousand years. And then the new heavens and new earth is after that, where he's reigning only over his happy, faithful servants, believers. Okay. 
All right, um, now onward. And so here's something we've talked about a lot, but I thought would be valuable for us just to, to have this in our heads. And it's important as we, as we approach um, dispensational premillennialism. Um, and so, um, uh, Anna, can you read this? What's on screen now? Synonym, God uses them. All right, thank you. All right, so um, just looking at, at some things uh, here. Um, so here's a, a, one example we can see here in Scripture of, of synonyms, and, and there's probably you know thousands that we could look at that God uses through Scripture. Uh, but is, is this, and Randy, can you read this bullet here? The holy place. Okay, so the holy place. Uh, anyone brave enough to, to say what's the holy place? Okay, and so where would that be on this picture here? What is that on this picture, if you can describe inside it? Inside the fence, outside the box. Okay, so um, it's this. So this is the tabernacle uh, in the wilderness and that existed um, through David's day until Solomon built the temple. Um, and, and so you see um, here numbers of, of things here. And so this is... This, this is the outer courtyard. Mm -hmm. And so here's the courtyard of the temple, okay? Um, the courtyard's here. Here's the bronze altar. This is where they, they, um, sacri they sacrificed uh, on this side. Um, and then they, they burned. Anything that was supposed to be burned with the sacrifice, they would put in this big bronze altar. Um, and, and then, but, but the tabernacle itself is that tent and it's a rectangle um and, and uh, that gets then when the temple's built the temple is that rectangle and the temple also has a courtyard um where and you know in the same same setup it's just instead of canvas you've got um you've got stone uh that the temple is built of okay um uh, but this is this is the holy place um, here, it's called in scripture, uh, that rectangle uh, there. So does the most holy place also get included in the holy place, or is it just... Yeah, good good question. Um, a square is always a rectangle, but a <laughs> rectangle isn't always a square. So let's look at, well, and we'll get to that. So let's look at Exodus 40. Everybody open your Bibles. It's the very end of Exodus Okay, and let's read verses 34 and 35. So what's happened here in, in Exodus, you have starting in verse 25, you have God describing um, the whole um, complex of tabernacle, holy place, most holy place, courtyard, everything that's to be built and crafted for it. Uh, and then uh, after the uh, golden calf, which is uh, chapter 32, then you have the building of it. And so you have, and when you're reading in Exodus, you know, there's a whole repeating of all this stuff. And it's just, you know, the first time, 25 and forward, you've got God talking to Moses on the mountain. Here's what you're to build. Here are the dimensions of it. Here are the materials that are to be built of. And then after the golden calf, Moses has come down, sees the golden calf, you get through all that stuff. And then you have the actual building of the tabernacle in the last chapters of Exodus. And so the tabernacle, chapter 40, has just been all built and it's set up. And one of the, the uh, catchphrases in uh, Exodus is God says to Moses, and build this exactly as I've told you to. And so then as the tabernacle is being built, it tells us that they build it exactly as had been prescribed to Moses. And so then this is all put together and it's presented to Moses for inspection to make sure it's exactly as the Lord wanted it to be, and it is. And so here we have God's reaction to them creating this tabernacle exactly as he had um, prescribed it to be, verses 34 and 35. 
And, and so, um, uh, how about Bill and then Crystal read these two verses for us. Bill, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay. Now, you have two more phrases here. And Matthew, did you have a question? Or Kind of, sort of. Um, so, it just got me thinking. The materials themselves, were they holy? Um, after they were consecrated with anointing. So that the priest would go around with oil and he'd sprinkle oil, anointing oil, on all the articles, furniture, curtains of the, the tabernacle. So this is where it seems maybe getting lost in the trees here. Um, obviously, canvas wears out. Yeah. So did they replace it? I mean, or did they build it entirely anew? And then when they did so, did they also make the materials holy the they, they they would have uh we can't say for sure it doesn't seem like it did um there is at the end of the 40 years of wilderness wandering the comment by god that their sandals did not wear out and so i would think that the same would be true of the tabernacle as well yeah and it was pretty sturdy stuff um and like the um uh, a lot of it was uh, double or even quadruple layered stuff um and like the the roof was like double layered and then it had another layer of different material like like porpoise skins or something over that you know so that um uh so that it would be protected uh but anyway so um what two new phrases do we have here in terms of the the um structure tent of meeting, tent of meeting and, tabernacle. and tabernacle okay tent of meeting and tabernacle um, so those are two places you got them. Um, and then our, our question uh, here, um, Steve, can you read our question bottom? What is happening to the tent of meeting and what is happening to the tabernacle? So look at these two verses. What's happening? The glory of the Lord is, the glory of the Lord is, is yeah. Unless you're dispensational, <laughs> which you're not. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's so that's a good that's a good point there. And so we see we see the overlapping the glory of the Lord and the cloud. Now the cl it's the cloud of glory. It's the glory cloud. And you see as you as you walk through all the wilderness wanderings. You see this just synonymous use of all these things. And so that's, you know, so we see, and so what we're seeing here is not that we have two different things, which we'll see in a moment, that there's a tent of meeting and then there's a tabernacle, but these are synonyms for the same thing. And they're having the same thing happen to them. They're being inhabited by the glory of the Lord or the glory cloud. Uh, and so as God's people are following the glory of the Lord around in the wilderness, they're also following around the uh, um, uh, cloud, the the, the cloud, um, and it's synonymous. Okay, it's that that pillar. Okay, uh, pillar of fire by night and pillar of, of cloud uh, by day. Okay, so the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, used synonymously here, just uh, with the glory of the Lord uh, or the the cloud filling the tabernacle. And when the cloud fills, or the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, the high priest Moses can't enter because they can't see. Okay, And so they just stay back. And, and this is something you see throughout Exodus through Deuteronomy um, as you go through this um, there. So, you know, Emily helped us out with her question about the, the glory of the Lord in the cloud. Uh, but also in parallel here, tent of meeting, uh, tabernacle. Um, here's our here's our question, and so uh, Betsy. Are the tent of meeting and the tabernacle the same place or different? Okay, now here you could say, well, you know, I think they're different, and we could take a raise of hand, you know, a show of hands, and I think they're the same, and you could take a show of hands, but you can't anymore when you look through the rest of Exodus through Deuteronomy because you see they're 
uh, synonymous use, just back and forth in the same way. The tabernacle is described as the same way the tent of meeting is described. And so we'll take a look at this um, here. Um, yeah, there we go. So the tent of meeting and the tabernacle um, are the same. Uh, next, Matthew, have you read for us already? Okay, go ahead. Principle of understanding language in life, in everyday communication, and in the Bible. Um, Charlene? If two words have the same definition, they are synonyms. Everyone get that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, the definition of a synonym. <laughs> and so a, a, friend, a friendly duh there. Uh, that's the definition of a synonym. Um, two words with the same definition. Okay. Sorry, uh, Chris will just ask you how was. That is Joe, Joe Bluth. It's from a show in the early mid 2000s. To say Joe Bluth just shows you were done. But it's George Oscar. Uh, Oscar Bluth. Was yes. Yeah. It's just a magician name, Dobbs. Yes. There you go. So he's a magician, so he was saying, duh. Um, okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so our principle of understanding language and life in everyday communication and in the Bible, uh, Mallory, the bottom bullet there. Put another way, if something is named and then described, and its description matches something with a different name, Da, 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 Andrew. The two names are alternate, alternate names for the same thing. <laughs> okay, so Allison. Julius Irving and Dr. J are the same man. Oh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't have read that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Yes. Yeah, and, and so you see, you know, you can use two things for the two words for the same thing. Now, then this is important when we're looking at scripture. And what, uh, I've, you know, what you've been hearing over and over from me um, for as long as you've been in the church, but especially in the last six months, is God uses synonyms. And in everyday life, we use synonyms. And you ought not to, and you are wrong if you look at the Bible and you assume that God does not use synonyms. Because then you're talking all kinds of nonsense in the Bible. If you interpret the Bible, when you take every separate word as a different thing, that's not how language works. And God knows that. Okay? And so biblical authors sometimes say Jesus and they sometimes say Christ and they sometimes say the son of God and they sometimes say the Messiah and those are not five different people. And you know that. But I want you to realize what you're doing. I want you to have a conscious awareness of what you're doing. That all through the Bible, you've already assented to the fact that God uses synonyms. And that when you see Jesus and when you see the Son of God, it's the same person. And not two different people because two different phrases or names were used. Okay. Um, yeah, Laura. So sometimes, like in that example, when you're when you're talking about Jesus and Christ, then you're you're yeah. trying to bring out, you know, the writer of scripture is trying to bring out, you know, some specific aspect. Sometimes. Right. But so, how do you know when you're you're supposed to see a little bit more? By know? context. Just, yeah. So. Um, you know, if you're in Matthew and Matthew says, uh, you know, could he be the Messiah? And then in parentheses, it says that is the Christ. You say this is th that's what was spoken among Jews. Could this be the Messiah? Because the Messiah is what language? Hebrew. Hebrew. And it means what in English? Anointed one. Anointed one. OK, what's the Greek word for anointed one? Christ. Christ. Yeah. Now, if Christ is used first probably a Greek audience. And if there's a parenthetical explanation that says that is the Messiah, you know, that's giving to a secondary audience 
that would be Jewish. Um, and, and so sometimes you can look contextually and say, is this different word for this same thing used because there's something in the context that's indicated by this new use of the word? Or is this simply Matthew being a human being who says, I don't want to say my grandmother every time I am talking about Mildred Musgrave, you know, and, and so the use of synonyms in scripture, just like in everyday life, is sometimes nothing more than a stylistic difference. Okay. Um, and so, you know, uh, earlier books and books that are about Jesus, like the Gospels, uh, when they talk Messiah and Christ, they have a heavier emphasis, especially when they're talking to Jews, on Jesus being the anointed king, the son of David. In later books, off to Gentiles, like Second Peter, when they say Christ, there's a little bit less emphasis emphasis on that because he's not trying to prove to them and the context will show this as well in second peter he's not trying to prove to them that jesus is the long-awaited anointed king that we jews have been expecting and by the time peter's writing second peter you know ad 67 um, that's kind of an established fact whereas when matthew is using it in ad 44 45 that's his point that when he calls Jesus the Messiah and, and the Christ in Greek, he was writing in, in, in Greek, that, that um, he's, he's, and you see that from the context, that he's making the point that Jesus is the son of David, the anointed king that we have been awaiting. And so you see a lot more meaning in that term. And then, you know, today when we say Christ, you know, it's, it's practically just a stylistic difference with Jesus and Son of God and, you know, anything else that you could call Jesus that would be appropriate. Okay. So good good question there. So context is a big part of that answer. Yeah, Emily. Wherever in Scripture, and let's say we're um, paraphrasing something for our own understanding, our yeah. own comprehension. Yeah. And let's say L-O-R-D capital is used. Yeah. Word. Yeah. Is it inappropriate to substitute that with God. No. Um, and, and yeah, and so we can use synonyms too. Mm -hmm. And now if you're teaching somebody, you know, you'd still use synonyms because they don't know Hebrew and Greek and all that kind of stuff too. Um, but, but you could, you know, as a teaching point, you know, say if you're talking about capital, all caps, L-O-R-D, which is the Hebrew Yahweh, which is a, a, a term that means, you know, I, um, literally, I cause to be, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a shortened form of the sentence name. <laughs> God has sentence names, you know, for different people, like he who deceives Jacob, that's a sentence name, or dances with wolves, <laughs> right? Those are sentence names. And in the ancient world, there were sentence names, and a sentence name of God was the God who causes his hosts to be. The full name is the God of hosts, or the Lord of hosts, and both are used. El is the Hebrew for God, as, and then, um, and then uh, Lord is uh, Adonai. Okay, and so you have both uh, Adonai um, Sabaoth, which is hosts. A host means angelic army. The hosts are the angels who fight for God's people at the Lord's command. And so you have in the Old Testament, you know, both God of hosts and Lord of hosts in English. Um, and, and when you see L-O-R-D in all caps, it is that Yahweh, which means I cause to be. It's the causative form of I am. Um, and, and, uh, and it's a short, it's a shortened form of that whole idea that God calls his angels to fight for his people on earth. It's the warrior God who's for his people and fighting for them. Now, you can even look in context there. Um, in, um, so it's good for us when we see L-O-R-D, like you see in uh, verse 35 here. L-O-R-D in all caps. Um, this is especially important and uh, used as God communicates to his own people that he will be fighting for them in the promised land as they went into the promised land 
just as he fought for them to get them out of Egypt. Um, L-O-R-D in all caps, Yahweh is also used prominently in the uh, prophets too, because God is offering to be that God to them, the one who fights for them and will get their enemies out of the promised land and or bring them back to the promised land. Uh, and so when we see L-O-R-D, it, it, it can have varying um, degrees, and this goes into our, our use of synonyms, you know, it can have various degrees of etymological meaning. That is the meaning at its origin that uh, L-O-R-D really means the God who fights for his people by his angelic army. Um, uh, and so it's always good for us to have that in the back of our minds, but it may not be prominent there in that particular passage. Sometimes it may just be used as a stylistic synonym. And, and we can just judge based on context. What is God talking about here? If God's talking about that he's going to deliver his people and he uses all caps L-O-R-D, you say, boom. And, and anyone who was Hebrew speaking, reading this at its original hot off the press would be reminded of that. Um, it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, I mean, the NIV doesn't, chose not, and you can read in the translational principles at the front of any NIV Bible, they chose not to translate Lord of hosts and God of hosts. Uh, you know how they translated it? Whenever they use, whenever hosts is there, they don't use it because they said, that's so archaic, no one knows what it means, right? Who knew what hosts meant before you came into this church? That it meant God's angelic army fighting for you. Okay, great. So like two of you knew that. Um, and so the NIV translators in 1973, when they, they came out with the, um, the New Testament, the Old Testament was 1978. So in 1978, they decided as a translational thing, whenever they saw God of hosts or Lord of hosts, they would translate it Lord Almighty. So when you're reading in your NIV and it says Lord Almighty, you can know it says of hosts in there. And it's that specific reference. Now, the NIV did carry over, as you see here, the L-O-R-D in, cap, in all caps. Mm -hmm. And so you can know when you're looking at your Bibles and pretty much any translation, they kept the all caps L-O-R-D, which means Yahweh, which means I cause to be, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, just. And then if in Scripture it says of hosts, if you're reading a more literally translated, like uh, New American Standard or ESV or King James, it'll say L-O-R-D, all caps, of hosts, there. If you're reading the NIV, it'll say Lord Almighty. Or if it uses God, there, God Almighty, there. But the Almighty, with a capital A, is a substitute for of hosts because it encapsulates the substance of the idea. God's fighting for his people. He's mighty for us. Um, and so that's why they chose the term almighty because they thought at least if we put this in there, English readers will have the idea that God is almighty. The God who's, you know, who's making these promises is almighty. And if we put of hosts in there, that'll just be completely lost on them unless they've been taught what of hosts means. Um, so just... Some things you got to do translationally, you know, there. Um, advantages and disadvantages either way. Okay, so good question about synonyms. So it's fine to use synonyms. And even, you know, if you're in a passage that says the Lord filled the tabernacle, it's okay to say God filled the tabernacle or the Lord and you write it in not all caps. You know, it, it's okay because you're not claiming to be scripture and you're talking about the same one, God. Um, okay, on with our, our uh, thing about synonyms. Uh, so um, our principle of understanding in language, and this is a big thing in properly interpreting the scriptures, that you're using, you should use language just the way you use it in everyday life. Don't take on some arbitrary 18th century scientific um, view of language that is not present in the scriptures themselves and that you don't employ in everyday life where you don't use synonyms.
right? In science and math and technical things, you have to use language in a very precise way, or you're putting the wrong thing into your chemical solution, or you're uh, um, putting uh, the wrong uh, level of force into your uh, whatever you're making or creating or building. Um, and, and you want to be precise so you know exactly what you're talking about. And those within your field know that when I use this term, uh, it means exactly this. That way there's no confusion because lives are at stake if you're building a bridge. Right? So you want to use exact language that never has variance and never a synonym is used for. But in everyday life, we're not using words in a technical way. We're using words with all their synonyms and all the breadth of their meaning. Okay, And that's what God is doing in, in Scripture, using words in the breadth of their meaning most of the time. Um, so second bullet here. Um, let's, let's see. Um, how about, um, Allie, can you read this second bullet, the bottom one there? Okay, so other way around. At first we said same description can be the definition of two different words. Sometimes one word or one thing can have two different descriptions. Um, so um, uh, let's, Brenda, can you read this next bullet for us, please? Okay, so uh, example of this, just using something I didn't have to look up too many facts for since Dr. J is my favorite basketball player of all time. Um, description one, um, John, would you read description one? He is six foot six, played for the University of Massachusetts, and was drafted into the NBA. Nope. Or ABA. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Playing for the Virginia Squires and then the New Jersey Nets wearing number 32. Okay. Um, and then, um, Zoe, description two. He won an early 80s stand-up competition in the 1970s by Tennessee Lincoln in the Colorado Rangers with Zion Shredder and Nikki Basketball. Won number six for the Philadelphia 76ers on Magic Johnny Bowling in 2002. Okay. Two descriptions. Um, one person or two people. Anyone know? Who is Dr. J? <laughs> no, yeah, one person. These are both descriptions of Julius Irving, otherwise known as Dr. J. Both descriptions of him with no overlapping parts. The only overlapping part is that he's a basketball player. So, so understand that about language. Understand that about definitions. Sometimes in scripture, we have something that's described and it has no overlap with that same thing described with other aspects of it in another part of scripture or even in the next paragraph or in the next or in the next chapter and it's our responsibility to see as we're looking at scripture what's around this what's the context of this is this the same thing or is it a, a different thing and each of you, I can describe in, you know, a, a different way, right? Uh, I can say, you know, I can say Bill. And you say, oh, who's that? He's one of the deacons and he's the tallest one. Okay, so that's one description. But if I'm talking to somebody else who's not in the church, who knows Bill kind of personally, and they're saying, which Bill? I say, you know, Bill with five kids. And they say, oh, okay. Two completely definitions of Bill, same person. And I'm not playing a fast one here. I'm just describing what I need to describe in the situation. Someone in the church who's kind of new to the church, you know, who knows that our deacons take up the offering, um, would say, oh, okay, the tallest one who takes up the offering, okay, that's Bill. Okay, now I know who Bill is. And so I describe, I would describe him in that way. Whereas somebody who's not in the church, if I gave that description, they would, that would do nothing for them. And so I give a different definition of the same person. And, and you all can have about, uh, you know, 250 definitions of you that would describe different aspects of who you were. 
Uh, and so that's going on in Scripture as well. And so that's something to realize as we seek to interpret Scripture. And we see different definitions going both ways. Sometimes the same substance of definition with two different names. That's what we talked about first. And sometimes it's the same thing described in two very different ways, yet just describing two different aspects of that very of that very same thing, like these two Dr. J definitions here. Okay. There's the dunk. <laughs> Woo! All right. Uh, and so, uh, Elijah, you get the easy one here. Last bullet on the right. So that makes sense. You all know this, but uh, we're talking about so that you have a conscious awareness of this because that's important for you as you look at the scriptures. You know, and you you're, again, you already do this when you see Jesus in one verse and you say Christ in the next verse. You know already that that's the writer hasn't switched subjects and that he's not talking about a second person. So you already do this, but I want you just to be aware that you do do this. And because this comes into, this is what ends up being the, uh, the interpretive or fancy word hermeneutical. That's the, the academic word for interpreting. You know, the, the interpretive um, key that separates dispensational premillennialism from historic premillennialism, from postmillennialism, and from uh, amillennialism as well, because uh, uh, dispensational premillennialism generally doesn't accept synonyms, uh, and, and so they come up with different, all these different synonyms are different things, not synonyms for the same thing, but all these different names mean different separate entities different things. All right. So, so far, um, we've talked about um, the tent of meeting and the tabernacle from these two verses here in, in Exodus. Uh, now we can uh, look at, um, Jeff, can you read this from Exodus 26, uh, 33 through 35? So there we go. So um, look at what phrases we have here um, that have bolded for us. What are our new phrases? Holy place, most holy place, and tabernacle. Yeah. So holy place, most holy place, and tabernacle. Now just from these three verses here, is the holy place the same thing as the tabernacle? What's in the holy? What's in the? Um, what's in the? What's in the holy place? Or yeah. yeah. Um, let me let me ask this. What's in the most holy place? The ark. The ark. Okay. So the ark's here. And what separates two things, two places that are mentioned here in this passage? Okay, so there's a curtain, and it separates what from what? The holy place from the most holy place. Yeah, the ho the holy place from the most holy place. Now, so we said this is the holy place here. So now this is this is the inside of that rectangle, the tent rectangle that we saw before. And so you enter here. This is the side we saw, and the bronze altars outside in the courtyard over on this this way. This was all facing east eastward. Um, but so here's the holy place. What else is the holy place called here, or what do we see is in the holy place? Um, in this passage. Okay, so it's, the holy place is also called the tabernacle. How can we make sure of that in these verses? 
Yeah, verse three. What's in verse thirty-five? The table outside the curtain on the north side, and they call it in the tabernacle. Yeah, yeah. So in verse thirty-five, place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle. Okay. Um, so here's the north side of the tabernacle, and put the lamps in opposite it on the south side. But um, where's the uh, where's the uh, ark and the cover for the ark? these verses yeah um, so you see the curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place put the atonement cover on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place so there we go there's the most holy place there's the holy place but the holy place is also called what the tabernacle, the tabernacle. so right here we see just a synonymous use of um, tabernacle um, and uh, holy place here, okay? For me, that's like when I write an academic paper and I don't want to sound redundant yeah. by saying the same thing over and over and over for the same, yeah, or the same term for the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And this is one place, and you can, you know, if you if you have a Bible on computer where you can do a search, you can do a search for most holy place and uh, lampstand, all these kind of all these articles in this, and you'll see this synonymous use of these various terms okay there's there's tabernacle and holy place um there's most holy place and sanctuary um is a, a synonym uh for that um exodus 20 uh, 21 um let's could you read this for us ashley Okay, so we see what's in the tent of meeting? Yeah, the lamps are on the outside. So again, we've got that. But up again, up here, we've got the, the holy place. Because in uh, verse 33, um, a curtain is separating the holy place from the most holy place. So again, just use the synonyms there. And, and you know, even more here, uh, 36.3. Uh, Chase, can you read this for us? Three and four. Actually, you read three and have your brother read four for us. So here's another synonym there for us, there's sanctuary. Um, and so now, uh, Lily. Okay, so we see this, this use of these various terms in, in this way. And, uh, you know, for somebody who said, well, you can, there's so much in Exodus through um, Deuteronomy that you can show this uh, synonymity uh, between uh, many of these terms and you can identify um, different terms that are, that are being used there. Okay. Uh, so generally, um, uh, and so, okay, there we go. So uh, our conclusion there is Allison. Uh, so God uses synonyms even about the end times. Okay, so we establish that um, as we go as we go in uh, to look at um, our last time stuff. So you've got um, all these phrases uh, that are used when we're in last things discussions, like um, Charlene, last days, and Matthew, the end of all things, uh, Bob. <laughs> Dakota. Time, time, time. Um, Anna. Thousand years. Uh, Joyce. One thousand two hundred sixty days. Uh, Bill. Three and a half days. Mm -hmm. uh, Crystal. Five months. Uh, Steve. One hundred forty-four thousand. Um, Laura. Okay, that may be it. 
yeah. So all, all these all these different things uh, that we see there, all these different all these different terms. Um, not all of these that I've listed here are synonyms, but many of them are for one another. Um, and so, what do we do when the same substance is given a different name? The same definition is given a different name. What's what do we understand? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Or what about the other way around? Uh, what if um, one thing has one definition here and a one a different definition in another place? It's still the one thing. Still the one thing. Different aspects being described because you know Burger King principle, right? You can't explain everything every time you say it, or you can never say anything. Right, you can't give all the ingredients for for a Whopper every time you're talking about a Whopper, or that's all you'll ever talk about. <laughs> right, you, you, you got at some point you got to just say Whopper, and you can't say, you know, tomatoes and shredded lettuce and mayonnaise and ketchup and mustard and pickle and a sesame seed bun and two patties of this amount of weight and you know that kind of thing. At some point you got to just say Whopper, and you can't say every detail about. You can't give every definition, every detail of the definition, every time you're talking about it. Sometimes you just gotta use that symbol, which we call a word, and you, you say whopper. Yeah. No, I was singing the the Yeah. So next week we'll we'll stop there. So now that we understand this, we've kind of got our framework to understand um, where. Uh, dispensational premillennialism comes from uh, because of an, an, an interpretive decision they've made that when we're talking about end times, we're not going to use synonyms. Now, if you went approached a dispensational premillennial person and said, okay, you guys don't use synonyms when you talk about end times, they'd say, what do you mean? Uh, but, but it's in effect, it's, it's practiced by them, they don't realize, some do, the, the deeper you are into it, the more you realize uh, that. But, um, uh, but it's, what, um, it's what created dispensational premillennialism. It's why dispensational premillennialism didn't come into effect until after the scientific revolution, right? When technical terms started being used for the purposes of math and science. Uh, and, and dispensational premillennialism was the application of um, mathematical, scientific, technical terms applied to the way we read scripture on this certain subject of last things. Okay, um, and so just like with pre with historic premillennialism, the thing they get they get caught up on is that Jesus has a physical reign with the physical saints who are alive on earth and he's reigning on earth over non-believers who are existing on earth it's because they made that decision that jesus has to have, has to have a physical reign over non-believers that's what drives their jesus is on earth for a millennium ruling on earth uh, and in dispensational premillennialism the thing that drives that is this lack of um uh, use of synonyms in a large degree when they're talking about anything to do with last things. Dispensational person understands Christ and Jesus are the same person. But when they get to last things stuff, then they say, oh, nope, different word. It must mean a different thing. Okay. That's almost always true. Yeah, Laura. Uh, I think you uh, Steve, and then we gotta get moving. Last question: Is there a book written historically about the wackamamie stuff that came out of the 1800s? In other words, what led up to? <laughs> because we we transported this all our over the world. Dispensationalism and all the major Christian cults came out of the mid 1800s, yeah, largely in America. Historical yeah. review of what was going on yeah. in the nation that created this monster. Yeah, there probably is a book. Uh, generally, if you find a more academic book on Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Seventh-day Adventists um, or dispensationalists um, that talk about, uh, you know, why did this come up, they'll, they'll mention this, that, you know, it comes out of a, a, 
a modern scientific industrialization um, society. Was there also a discontent, a deep discontent with the way the church was operating at that time? No. Okay. Um, now, now there was like on the part of Joseph Smith, you know, he, he literally said the Baptists are wrong, the Methodists are wrong, the Presbyterians are wrong, you know, and, and went with his own thing. But he was probably, as we look at him, probably a weird guy who, 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 yeah, there you go. Yeah. Bill. Okay. Um, Let's pray. Father.